So let me set the scene initially by sharing a few scripture passages with you. So this first one is from John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus appears after his resurrection to his disciples. And he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And that word sending is key because it's central to Jesus's identity. He is the sent one by the Father. And it's central to the disciples and by extension to us. It's central to our identity as ones who likewise have been sent by the Father and the Son to represent his purposes in the world. Or again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, again, speaking to his disciples, following his resurrection before his ascension, says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So one of our primary tasks as followers of Christ is to be witnesses to the reality of who he is and what he's done within the places where he has set us. And then one more scripture passage from Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And he says, and he, God the Father, gave the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This has always been a very important verse for me because my call is to be a shepherd and a teacher. And the purpose of my call is to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. So the idea here is that the work of ministry and the work of mission is not limited to the pastors, to the religious professionals, but it is the task of the whole church. So the whole church, all of us together, are called to engage in this task of ministry and in mission in particular. But in order to engage in mission, we have to have a firm understanding of our cultural context. Now they say you should never ask a fish to describe water. And it's very hard for us to describe the culture in which we live and how it poses challenges as well as opportunities for Christian missions. So I'd like you to try to get in touch tonight with your inner sociologist or your inner cultural anthropologist because what we'd like to do is take a step back from our individual lives and try to reflect together on what does it mean to live in a secular age? What does it mean to live in a late modern world? So let me introduce some concepts here by telling you a little bit about this man, Leslie Newbegin. So when I was in seminary, I finished my first year of seminary in 2003, and then I spent the summer in Tokyo, Japan. So Ashley and I were married at this point for two years. She had just finished her first year of law school, and she had uh, learned Japanese in the past, so she had a summer job lined up working for a Japanese law firm in Tokyo. I, on the other hand, being a seminary student, was unemployed. So I decided to spend the summer on a sabbatical of my own making, and I basically spent the whole summer reading books. So Ashley would go off to work, and I would stay in our very teeny tiny apartment all by myself and read books all day. To some of you that might sound like a nightmare, to me it was a dream. But uh, that was the first time that I read Leslie Newbegin. And I would say that, uh, though I don't agree with everything that he believed or taught or wrote, he revolutionized my concept of ministry. You see, this was his story. He was trained at Cambridge. He became ordained in the Church of Scotland as a pastor. And then in 1936, he went to India as a foreign missionary. So there in India in the 1930s and then on for the rest of his career for the next 40 years, he learned how to communicate the Christian gospel across a cultural divide and across a cultural divide where all the presuppositions of the broader culture pointed in a very different direction than the truths of the Christian faith. In fact, everything within Hindu culture made the gospel seem impossible. And yet despite that challenge, he learned how to communicate the gospel across that cultural divide. Then in 1974, he returns home to the United Kingdom. 
And to his shock and surprise, after being away for 40 years, he realizes that the West, Western culture, is now in a missionary situation, not altogether unlike what he had experienced in India. So just as he had to communicate the gospel across the cultural divide in India, so now he realized that Christians needed to do the same thing within their own culture, uh, that now all of a sudden the basic presuppositions of the broader society were pointing in a very different direction than Christian faith. And for that reason, it was much more difficult now to uh, help people understand the Christian message. And one of his key insights was that he, dis he said that the, the West was not simply a neutral society with no beliefs, but rather a pagan society with false beliefs. But unlike a pre-Christian pagan society, the West had become a post-Christian pagan society that in some ways was all the more resistant to the Christian message for once having been so deeply influenced by it in the past. And so I'm reading this in Japan. I'm reading this as a outsider, as a foreigner. I'm, I'm completely out of my comfort zone. I'm in an altogether different uh, cultural context. And I'm reading Newbigin, who's describing the West as being an altogether different cultural context than what it had once been. And so then when I went home uh, from being overseas, even though it was just for the summer, I came back looking at our own culture uh, through new eyes. And for me, that, that was the light bulb that went off in terms of how do I now conceive of my calling as a pastor? Well, even though I'm within the culture that I was born and raised in, I'm still now, nevertheless, a missionary within my own culture. And I think that's true for all of us. Uh, when we talk about equipping the saints for ministry, this is the role that we all need to take on, is we need to think about what does it mean to assume a missionary posture, the posture of a missionary within our very own culture. So when, uh, when Newbegin came back, he wrote uh, uh, a number of books. Uh, this one is taken from Foolishness to the Greeks. And he writes, after having spent most of my life as a missionary in India, I was called to teach missiology and then to become a missionary in a typical inner city area in England. This succession of roles has forced me to ask the question, what would be involved in a missionary encounter between the gospel and this whole way of perceiving, thinking, and living that we call modern Western culture? So that's the, that's the question that he poses. Uh, what would be involved in a missionary encounter between the gospel and Western culture? Now, here's another uh, way of framing the question here. So Stefan Poss is a... Uh, church planter and a missiologist based in the Netherlands. He recently wrote a book called Church Planning in the Secular West. And he also wrote a little essay in which he analyzes some of the major shifts within Western culture. So if we, if we take a long view, we could say that uh, beginning around 325 or so, uh, when Constantine adopted uh, the Christian faith for himself, we entered the era of what you might call Christendom. Now, for some, Christendom has a positive connotation uh, because we would think of this simply as the realm uh, where Christianity has taken hold. Uh, but generally, uh, sociologists and a lot of Christian theologians would think of Christendom in probably a negative way uh, because in Christendom, what we're talking about is the, the coupling of the church and the state. Uh, and oftentimes the result is that uh, the Christian message is diluted, if not distorted, if twisted by uh, politics and power. Uh, within the Christendom model, oftentimes uh, there was social pressure to adopt the faith and therefore within the Christendom model, uh, the, the faith was seen as, as somewhat coercive. With post-Christendom, what we're talking about is the separation of church and state, the decoupling of the church from politics and power. And so most people would see that as being 
a positive development. Uh, if nothing else, it, it means that there's a openness and an ability for people to voluntarily commit themselves to God and to the church. It's not something that's being done uh, by coercive, uh, coercive means. So that's seen as positive, and there's a social benefit, perhaps, to being part of the church within a post-Christendom context. But then uh, we enter more recent times, and we could say that uh, in the postmodern era, uh, we see a, a movement away uh, from the church altogether. Now, the term postmodern is usually used to explain a wide range of cultural phenomena, including pluralism, consumerism, relativism, hyper individualism, and the collapse of authority altogether. The prime questions of modernity, you could say, were why is this so and who says? And within the modern movement, those questions take on such a life of their own that they're turned in on the modern project altogether. Uh, and so it becomes almost like an acid that, that eats away at itself. And within the postmodern time, uh, what we see is the deconstruction of all systems of meaning and truth. And that creates something of a free-for-all then. Uh, who says uh, and why is this so? Uh, but for the church at least, uh, it creates something of a social balance, uh, it levels the playing field, uh, and therefore being part of the church can be seen as something uh, neutral. And Perhaps that's what we saw in recent decades, uh, perhaps the last few decades of the 20th century. Uh, it was not necessarily uh, a social benefit to being a part of the church, but uh, there wasn't necessarily a social cost either. Uh, but using the terminology that Stefan Poss has come up with, he would suggest that we have entered into new territory now. Uh, which he would say is post-Christian. And here, whereas there might have been a social benefit to being part of the church in the past, now there is a social cost. Uh, because increasingly, not only have people abandoned Christian faith for themselves, uh, but they're actually hostile towards Christian faith as it's being uh, advocated by others. So let me introduce you to one third person, uh, Charles Taylor, another philosopher who's written extensively on uh, the cultural context in which we live. So he is a Canadian, and he's a, a Catholic philosopher. And in 2007, he wrote a book called A Secular Age. And his primary question is, what does it mean to say that we live in a secular age? Uh, originally, the term secular referred to something like the earthly or the temporal. Uh, Augustine may have been one of the first people to introduce the term because he thought about the contrast between being a citizen of the city of man versus being a citizen of the city of God. And that's the tension that we live in uh, because of the already but not yet reality of God's coming kingdom. God's kingdom is already here, but it has not yet come in its fullness, and therefore we live in this tension where we're ultimately citizens of the city of God, and yet we're rooted here within the city of, of man until God returns and makes all things new. Uh, so originally that term secular just referred to the earthly or the temporal realm. Uh, later it came to mean perhaps neutral or non-religious space or a non-religious standpoint. Uh, so people start using the term secular to describe a school. A school is a secular school as opposed to being a parochial school. Uh, but when, when Taylor uses the term secular, he's using it in a somewhat different way, which is focused on our lived experience. Uh, what does it mean to actually live in this age that we might call secular today? And so he would define it like this. He would say, what does it mean to say that we live in a secular age? And he says, the shift to secularity consists, among other, th other things, 
of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. So let, let's read that one more time. So the shift to secularity consists, among other things, of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. So he sets out to describe what it feels like for believers and skeptics alike in order to live in the late modern world. And then he seeks to describe how we got here. Now it's important to see that he rejects what he calls subtraction stories. So some people would ask the question, okay, well, how did we get here? How did we end up in this context, this secular age? And many people would adhere to what is referred to as the secularization thesis. And the basic idea there with the secularization thesis is that people regard religion to be irrational. And so as societies progress, uh, as a result of uh, the advancement in science or in reason, well then religion and faith will die away. But Taylor says, if you look at the world, that's just frankly not the case. A lot of people thought that would be the case, that uh, especially in modern Western societies, as they advance, religion will slowly whittle away and die. Uh, but 9-11, perhaps more than anything else, disproved that thesis. It showed that religion, like it or not, was very much alive and wasn't necessarily going to go anywhere. Uh, and so the question then becomes, uh, how do we define the world in which we live? So it's a world in which, on the one hand, yes, more and more people reject religious faith and practice, and yet it's also a world in which all kinds of religious beliefs and practices continue to spread and to multiply. Uh, so, so how did we get there? How do we account for that? Uh, so what he would say is, against these subtraction theories, you can't just take the pre-modern world, subtract religion, and you end up with the secular, but rather a whole new kind of world has emerged that is not like anything we've ever experienced before. And that's perhaps one of the most helpful insights that Taylor has to offer, because I don't necessarily agree with his argument about how we got here, all the fine details, but I think that what he's saying in terms of the secular age being something unique in human history is very true. Uh, we're, we're dealing with a constellation of beliefs, values, ideas that in many ways we've never encountered before as a human race. <laughs> and uh, that definitely ups the ante then in terms of how do we as Christians faithfully engage with the world in which we live. So here's a, a common subtraction story attributes everything to disenchantment. First, science gave us a naturalistic expl explanation of the world, and then people began to look for alternatives to God, but things didn't work that way. Uh, so he's trying to tell an alternative story. And then the question that he poses, which I think is thought-provoking, is this. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. And actually, I would probably say that things have changed a little bit more within recent years, closer to what Stefan Poss is saying. So we don't even need to compare 2000 to 1500. We can compare where we are today to, let's say, 1950. So as you can see, I'm putting my art history skills to good use. I've been working on my doodling. Uh, but hopefully this, uh, this diagram will be helpful to you. So I've, I've drawn these two uh, scenarios for you. Charles Taylor's book is about 900 pages long, so I've tried to reduce 900 pages into two pictures. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> okay, so let's compare then and now. In the past, you could say that people, generally speaking, believed that there was some kind of sacred order. Maybe they believed in God, 
Maybe they believed in the good, like the ancient Greeks, or maybe they believed that there was some kind of absolute moral law. So we're not saying that everybody was a Christian, far from it, but we're saying that most human beings throughout the history of human civilization have believed in some kind of higher order, some kind of transcendent realm. And along with that came associated beliefs and values and moral truths. And most people believed that the way in which you experienced what Taylor calls fullness in life, the way in which you truly thrive as a human being, the way in which uh, you, you live a, a, a fulfilled life is by connecting to this, that sacred order. Uh, so, so that was the key to, to human existence. The autonomous individual had to subliminate his own or her own desires, uh, in order to connect with that sacred order. And if we think about even this country, let's say 50, 60 years ago, all the cultural institutions, the arts, education, the church, the business, the marketplace, the government, pointed to a basic set of agreed upon beliefs, values, and moral truths. Again, these cultural institutions are not necessarily Christian, but there is a kind of orthodoxy to which they're pointing to. They're, they're, they're pointing to a, a subset of beliefs and values that most people could agree to and could take for granted. It wasn't something that needed to be argued or reasoned for, it was just part of the background. And people found that uh, plausible. And this created what you could call a plausibility structure. So that's what the sociologist Peter Berger uh, termed this, a, a plausibility structure. Uh, so let me define that for you. So a plausibility structure uh, is uh, a set of beliefs, convictions, and understandings that either green light truth claims as plausible or red light them as implausible. So the idea here is that uh, if you've got all these cultural institutions that are pointing to a set of beliefs and values, then those ideas and practices create the conditions uh, where you can determine what beliefs are plausible. So it was more plausible to believe in Christianity because so many things within the culture were pointing to these same truths. So here, here's an example of this. Uh, this is a quote from a philosopher named Walter Sinnott Armstrong, who is an atheist philosopher. He wrote this essay in a book called Philosophers Without Gods. But what he describes here in his childhood uh, perfectly demonstrates this idea of a plausibility structure. Uh, everything within his experience is pointing to that same sacred order, and therefore it's possible to take belief in God for granted. It's not something that needs to be thought about. So he says, my childhood was inundated with Christianity. It's not that my family was especially religious, they weren't. It was just that I grew up in Memphis. Like most southern US cities in the 1960s, Memphis was overflowing with Christianity. Just as the Mississippi was hard to escape when it flooded, so Christianity was unavoidable in Memphis, especially around Christmas, Easter, and Thanksgiving. Anyway, I didn't try to avoid it. I went along like any good child would. Religion did not bother me at the time. My point is just that Christianity was so pervasive that any child who grew up in such an environment would be susceptible. Religious thoughts would become automatic. If someone had asked me if I believed in God, I would have answered, of course, not because I had thought about it, but because I had not thought about it. Now, when you read a quote like that, you can, you can already feel, I think, how we're living in such a different world, right? Uh, he's saying that in such a world as Memphis in the 1960s, religious thoughts would be automatic. That's certainly not the case for us anymore. Religious thoughts are not automatic. No, now they are deeply contested and therefore problematic, and that introduces a level of doubt, even among uh, committed believers. So if we come back to this picture of then, uh, because the cultural institutions are pointing to so many overlapping convictions, it creates something of a religious consciousness in the back of the mind of the average person on the street. 
So within that religious consciousness, there would be a sense that there are moral absolutes. Uh, there is a conception of both sin and guilt. There's a, a category for thinking about what salvation might be, or there's a category for thinking about the afterlife. And in such a world, then, evangelism, sharing the Christian faith, is not all that difficult because there's already so much background information and so much shared understanding about reality that, in a sense, uh, all you have to do is connect the dots. And so you could invite someone to come to church. Uh, you could invite them to an evangelistic campaign to hear a great speaker and they'll connect the dots, and maybe they had a conception of sin and guilt and salvation, but they didn't understand God, Christ, and faith, and so you connect the dots for them, and they give their lives to Christ and become a Christian. Uh, but what we're going to talk about is that that religious consciousness is now gone. So you can't just expect people to show up at church. You can't expect them to join you to go hear a great speaker. They're not going to come just because they hear that Central has a wonderful children's ministry. And a gospel presentation is not going to work either because so many of the gospel presentations that are out there are still relying upon some kind of religious consciousness, some kind of background information that makes sense of what you're, being, uh, of what you're presenting. And therefore, uh, you can't just connect the dots like people might have in the past. So where are we now? Well, Taylor talks about how if in the past we lived in an enchanted world that was open to the possibility of the supernatural, the sacred order, or of God, we now live in a disenchanted world uh, where that has, in a sense, been stripped away. And so now... Uh, if in the past uh, people said that an individual has to connect with the sacred order in order to be fully human, uh, now people would say that there is no sacred order. There is no God. Uh, there is no transcendent good. There is no absolute moral law. And therefore, there are no moral absolutes. And so for the very first time ever we have a culture that prioritizes the autonomous individual over and against the sacred order. And in effect, what we're being told then is that in order to thrive, in order to achieve fullness, in order to live a, a satisfying, fulfilled human life, we have to find something deep within ourselves to connect to. So rather than connecting to the, the sacred order, we have to connect to something deep within ourselves. And this is what leads to uh, what Taylor would call expressive individualism, that we have to identify whatever it is that makes us uniquely human, and then we have to express that. And to the extent that we express that, well, then we uh, find fullness. And to the extent that we fail to do that, well, then we fail uh, to live the life that we've been given. Uh, we, we deny our very selves. We, we miss the whole point of our lives. So uh, this, uh, this puts a lot of pressure then on the individual to uh, find those inner depths and uh, it creates this sense in which we have to do our own thing. Uh, we have to find our own fulfillment and therefore each of us has to construct meaning for him or herself. Uh, this leads to what Taylor also calls exclusive humanism. And so for the first time, he's saying that whatever, whatever meaning, whatever purpose, whatever uh, fulfillment can be had in uh, human life needs to be found within what this world alone can offer. Uh, and so it basically shuts off the whole concept of of the sacred order. And what compounds the problem then is all these cultural institutions that we were talking about before, where in Memphis in the 1960s might have been pointing to this shared set of beliefs and values. Now, 
they're all pointing to the individual. So the arts, the education, even the church to a certain extent, the marketplace, the government, they're all pointing to the individual as the end-all, be-all of existence. You've got to find your own identity. You've got to choose your own identity. You've got to construct your own meaning. And this has led to uh, what Taylor calls the Nova effect. So if, uh, if in the past there were a few different primary ways of finding meaning and purpose in life, Christianity offered one, Judaism offered another. Well, now, if each individual person has to tap into the inner depths within themselves and be true to themselves in order to find their meaning, well, then this just leads to an ever-expanding explosion of options in terms of how human beings find meaning and purpose in life. So he calls this the Nova effect, like a star dying and imploding. Uh, we now see this ever-expanding explosion of options in terms of what it means to be human. It leads to this choose-your-own-identity uh, kind of situation. Uh, so, so the cultural institutions are pointing to the individual, not to the sacred order. That removes that plausibility structure uh, that was undergirding the the possibility of Christian belief, and therefore it removes altogether this religious consciousness. So there, there are no moral absolutes. And if you're talking to people and they don't believe in moral absolutes, well then it's very hard to talk about any concept of sin or guilt. People don't feel guilty if they don't feel like there's any laws to break. And in fact, they may feel that part of their identity is from being transgressive, from breaking whatever cultural laws or taboos may be out there. So now we find it's very, very hard to talk about sin. And it's very, very hard to talk about guilt because people don't feel guilty. They might feel a lot of shame within our society, but they don't necessarily experience a lot of guilt. And so much of the way in which Christians have presented the gospel is by addressing this problem of guilt. But how do you present the gospel if people don't feel guilty? Uh, and then the whole concept of, of salvation has gone out the window, too. If anything, people might say, well, what we need to be saved from is the very idea that we need saving. So the religious consciousness is gone. The plausibility structure is gone. And for that reason, when we talk about the gospel, it sounds crazy. So here's an example from another author named Sam Chan. He says, this is what the gospel sounds like if that plausibility structure is no longer in place. Last night, while my wife and I were watching TV, a UFO landed in our backyard. A green alien got out of the UFO and asked us to join him. So my wife and I got into his UFO and he took us to his home planet, Jupiter. We had dinner with his family. Afterward, we got into the UFO and returned to Earth, but when we got back, because of the space-time continuum, we went through a time portal, and only one second of Earth time had passed. Now, he says, if you're talking to someone within the secular age in which we live, where all the cultural institutions are pointing to the autonomous individual, where we all feel that we need to choose our own identity in order to find meaning and purpose in life, uh, if there is no background religious consciousness, then this story about the UFO is not so different than this. 2,000 years ago, God sent us his son, Jesus. This man, Jesus, was 100% God and 100% human at the same time. He was born from a virgin. While he was on earth, he healed sick people and raised dead people back to life. And then he died on a cross. If you believe this, he will take away all your sins and forgive you. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again to life and is now in heaven. If you trust him, God's spirit lives in you right now. When you die, your soul will leave your dead body to be with Jesus in heaven. And one day he will return and set up a kingdom on earth. And when he does, your dead body will rise from the grave and be reu reunited to your soul. Now, I read this this summer and I thought, oh man, he's right. This is, this is how the gospel sounds to people who work alongside us and live next door to us. It, it sounds like a story about a UFO. And what Newbegin realized years ago is that here's the problem. The church has not woken up to the reality that we are in the missionary situation that we're in. The church has been operating like nothing has changed. And we need to get up to speed. We need to realize how much has changed and how much of a challenge this now presents to us.
So one of uh, Charles Taylor's key insights is that all of us, Christian believers, skeptics, adherence to other faiths or no faith at all, all of us, without exception, live within, within what he calls the imminent frame. So he's saying that, that every one of us, our experience within the secular age, what does it feel like? It feels like we live in a box. We live in a box that cuts us off from the sacred order. So even if you believe the gospel, even if you're a committed Christian, everything in your experience pushes you down to what is imminent rather than what is transcendent. Everything within your experience is, is, is pointing you to the idea that whatever meaning and satisfaction can be found in life has to be found within what this world alone can offer. And so our horizons have shrunk. Andrew Del Banco, who teaches at Columbia, uh, has talked about this in a similar way where he talks about our hope, our, our horizon, our vision for the future and of what's most important has shrunk over time from God to nation to self. Uh, we, are, we, we are so exclusively focused on the self that, that we've lost sight of this larger transcendent order. So all of us, without exception, live within the imminent frame. And what he means by that is, like a box, it, it both uh, blocks out it blocks out the sacred order, but it also frames the imminent. Uh, and the only question is, how do we live within that box? So we can live with the windows open, and this would be the position of a Christian, a follower of Christ today. We live within that imminent frame. That's the secular society in which we live. This is what our lived experience is like. But we live with the windows open, open to the possibility of God and to faith in Christ. Uh, but then there's others who live within that imminent frame and the windows are closed. So this would be the, uh, the committed atheist who would say, this world is all there is and I'm not even open to the possibility of something else. We live in this closed physical universe and there's nothing more to be said about it. And so the question is, how do we live within that imminent frame? How do we live within this secular age with faithfulness? Well, there's three challenges that we need to face. Difference, disillusion, and distraction. Difference is the challenge of pluralism. So, of course, People in all times and places have been aware of other cultures. They've been aware of difference. They, they know that people have believed different things about reality and about what it means to be fully human. What's unique about our time is that we experience difference more intensely and more frequently than people at any other point in time in history. And that's part of what then feeds disillusion or radical skepticism. And we've probably experienced this. My kids already experience this. As they go to school and they're encountering all these different people who have such different worldviews, it begins to make you wonder, well, do I, do I have it right? How do I know that what I've been told is true? Uh, and, and so... Christian faith is still possible to sustain. We're evidence of that here. Uh, and yet it is more difficult because of the, the reality of difference and disillusion of pluralism and skepticism. Andy Noble, or Alan Noble, I should say, has uh, written a book called Disruptive Witness, which I would recommend to you, where uh, he, he's playing off of a lot of the themes that Charles Taylor has introduced in terms of living in a secular age, but he also adds this idea of distraction. We not only live in a secular age, but we live in a distracted age uh, as a result of technology. And so he writes this, the distracted age has three major effects on our ability to communicate about matters of faith and ultimate meaning. One, it is easier to ignore contradictions and flaws in our basic beliefs. We're so distracted that we don't even pay attention to the contradictions in our ideas. Now, I experienced this 
when I was working as a campus minister at Northwestern because I often led a discussion group for people who were not Christians. So it was a discussion group for skeptics on key Christian concepts in a fraternity. And I would meet with the same group of five, 10, sometimes 12 guys, weeks at a time, where we would be discussing the ins and outs of, of Christian faith and belief. And I'd often point out some inconsistencies in their own thinking to try to get them to reconsider Christianity. And it was shocking to me that you could point out these inconsistencies or these contradictions. How could you believe A and B at the same time? And they just didn't care. It just didn't matter. Uh, and so that's something new as well. People don't really care if their views about ultimate reality contradict themselves or not. So it's easier to ignore our contradictions and flaws in our basic beliefs. Two, we are less likely to devote time to introspection. Right? It's so much easier to hop on our phone and visit social media or read a, a web page than, than to devote time to introspection. But then thirdly, this, this I think was the most important point for us, conversations about faith can be easily perceived as just another exercise in superficial identity formation. Now, let's go back to this image of the Nova effect. If everybody around you is thinking about what makes me uniquely human, and I'm trying to tap into those inner depths within myself to create my own identity, then when you talk about your Christian faith with them, they're not thinking that you are sharing some objective truth, the reality behind everything else. They think that you are just sharing your own way of creating your own identity. And so what uh, Alan Noble talks about in his book is that we have to change the way in which we share our faith so it doesn't sound like this is just our own version of choose your own identity, but we have to talk about it in a way that unsettles the people to whom we're speaking and, and dislodges some of those thoughts to help them see that perhaps what we're describing is, is something that is eternal and transcendent and not something that we've just decided for ourselves. So we've got these three challenges, difference, disillusion, distraction, and then three requirements if we want to effectively engage the people that God has placed in our lives from the standpoint of mission. So the first is constancy. I think we have to commit to the long term. This is going to take some time. I don't think it's like the old days at all, where people were going to church, they had that religious consciousness, and you just needed to connect the dots so you could invite them to hear a speaker or you could present a, a gospel outline to them. It's just not gonna work. Instead, this is going to take a long, long time. People are not gonna come to events. They're probably not gonna come to church. That's why we're doing this right now. I can't do this. I actually am very limited <laughs> in my ability to, to share the gospel with people who do not yet know Christ. It's gonna depend on you. And what will really make a difference is the relationships that you cultivate and the relationships that you cultivate for the long term. And people are gonna have to have countless conversations with you over many months, maybe many years, before they're able to piece together what it actually means to be a Christian. They wanna see you live it out. And they wanna see your friends live it out. And so I wouldn't leave this as a one-on-one -on -one conversation either with you and your friends, but invite those friends who do not yet know Christ into your circle of relationships. Let them meet other Christians. Let them see you live in community because it's your faithfulness to them in friendship over the long haul that has the greatest hope of, of helping them at least come to understand what is the Christian message, what is the gospel, and how is it not just another form of identity formation. And let me also say that you don't love people in order to share the gospel with them, but you share the gospel with them 
because you love them. Love has to be primary in all of our relationships. But this is going to take a long time, so constancy is required. The second thing that is required is creativity. We have to think outside the box. And by that, I mean literally, we have to think outside of that imminent frame. We have to think outside of the box. And we have to help people see that there is something beyond, that this world alone cannot satisfy all the deepest longings of the human heart. And this is another helpful thing that Charles Taylor says, is, is that we in this secular age think that this world is all there is. And yet oftentimes, if people are honest, in those moments of stillness, they may ask, them the, ask themselves, is this all there is? Or is there something more? And so we have to be creative about how do we unsettle people to get them to think uh, a little bit outside of the box. And this also means that we're gonna have to start much farther back. So if in the past people could share a basic gospel presentation in order to help people connect the dots, uh, we've got to start farther back. But we've got to start even farther back than merely dealing with objections. Uh, sometimes people say, well, if you could just help people uh, grapple with questions like, can we trust the Bible? Or if we deal with the, the negative history of Christianity and the church, or if we deal with the objection to an angry God who judges people, or if, uh, if we deal with uh, the, the ethical confinement of, of, the, of the teaching of the Bible, then we can get people to a place where, we're, where they're ready to hear a gospel presentation. But we're not even at the point where people are asking those questions. It's not that they have objections to the Christian faith, they just don't care. It doesn't matter to them. It's not on their, on their radar. And so we have to start even farther back than dealing with objections. We, we, we have to have conversations that are helping people to uh, see that there's a problem that they need to address that they're not even aware of uh, at the moment. So I'll give you an example of, of being creative and a little bit disruptive. Uh, Ashley, my wife, volunteers with the library at our youngest daughter's nursery school. And so this is just a very small, simple library, and they have a few different sections of books. And so she went there uh, at the beginning of the school year to help reorganize the library, get it set for the, the year ahead. And there's another parent that was there reorganizing the books with her. And so the books were organized into different categories, and there were uh, a few books in the science section, and then right next to the science section, there was a book on uh, there was a section on religions. There were books on Christianity and Judaism and Islam. And uh, <laughs> this, this other parent said, well, isn't this just ridiculous that the religious section is next to the science section? I mean, what could be more absurd? And uh, why don't we rearrange all the books? And when we do, why don't we put the religious section next to the fiction section? That would be much more appropriate. <laughs> and... Ashley could have just let it go, but she decided not to. She decided to uh, give a disruptive witness. So instead, she, she gently said, well, you know, I think that it might be a little offensive if we put the religious section next to the fiction section for those of us who actually do believe that there is something more to this life and that it's not all fiction and fairy tales. And this parent was so surprised that, uh, that Ashley would even respond in that way. But you see, that's a good example of how to just unsettle people a little bit. They can't be too comfortable with, with the view that they've adopted because there's people in their life who are helping them to see maybe there's more. Uh, and that, that's the role that we're called to play. But then finally, I think uh, that mission in a secular age requires courage. We've got to take risks, and we can't be afraid. It is much harder to be a Christian now, I think. There is a lot of pressure. If uh, the broader society is becoming increasingly more hostile towards Christian faith, then it may mean that there will be a social cost to be a follower of Christ. But we know that Christ has risen, that he's overcome the world, and therefore we need not be troubled, and we can have his peace. 
And with his peace, I think we have the courage to, to be bold, to be brave, to take risks, and to do it for the sake of others so that they might discover the true story of Christ, the true story of which their lives also are a part. So that's what I wanted to share with you tonight as a way of getting this conversation started. I'd like to take a couple minutes uh, to, to pray as we end in small groups. But one thing that I'd like you to think about is what are the questions that you're afraid to be asked? You see, I think that this is where we need courage. A lot of people are afraid to identify themselves as Christians in public because they're afraid of questions that they might be asked and they don't feel well-equipped to answer. And I want you to think about that. If you've, if you've got some questions that come readily to mind, uh, share them with me tonight before you leave because that could become the basis of future conversations that we have together. How do we address some of those tough questions that we feel like we're not in the position to, to answer right now? Uh, but I think that that would give us a start. Uh, we're timid about bringing up faith with people because we're not always sure what we would say. And so where do you feel most inadequate or where do you feel most ill-equipped? And if we're going to equip the saints for work of ministry, then that's what we need to focus on. So if you could, I'd love it if you would maybe gather with a group of two, three, four people next to you and pray for these three things. Pray that you as an individual, that together as a small group, and that we collectively as a church would be constant and faithful in our relationships with friends, neighbors, colleagues who do not yet know Christ, that we would be creative in how we think about communicating uh, the Christian faith to others, and that we would have courage uh, to take risks and not to be afraid.